VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. Yes, I'm sorry. It's the, it's that international break of the kind that crops up every four years, the one where there's uh, uh, no meaningful football and you're all getting withdrawal symptoms. Don't worry. It'll be back with a bang on Saturday. Um, some huge games next weekend. Uh, Chelsea and, uh, and, and, and Spurs, uh, Sevilla, Barcelona, Juventus and AC Milan, Der Clásica, right? What, what could be better than that? Borussia Dortmund and, uh, and Bayern and, uh, and a French League Cup final. How about that? See, I did my research. Monaco and Paris Saint-Germain. I'm delighted that I'm joined in the studio. We like to introduce him in different ways at different times. He's a man who wears many hats. Uh, former England under-21 captain. It's Stuart Robson from one franchise to another. Henry Winter will be joining us to discuss England's victory over Holland and the forthcoming friendly with Italy. Because it's International Week, we'll be speaking to not one, but two authors from around the globe. American journalist Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated uh, will be talking about his book, Football 2.0, How the World's Best Play the Modern Game. Basically, he analyzed different positions and roles in football by speaking to some of the best practitioners out there. And in Brazil, Andrew Downey has written about one of our producer Charlie's personal footballing heroes, the one and only Socrates. The, the... one of your heroes as well? You know what? I can admire what he did on the pitch. I admire his skills. I like the fact that he's politically committed and blah, 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 and had an opinion. And he's obviously very intelligent. But you know what? That whole playing at two miles an hour, I think it had time and a place and it's gone. But certainly one of the more interesting figures. Yes, it's the Game Podcast Book Club this week. Aren't you excited? Now, all that is to come. But first, we're going to start with Gareth Southgate and the Three Lions. We're sort of sandwiched in between uh, two England games as we record this on a Monday morning. Uh, England winning 1-0 um, in in Holland. And they have a game coming up on Tuesday at Wembley against Italy, the four-time champions of the world. Just, just, to, just a reminder, falling in hard times. Henry, I want to start with you just to get this out of the way. Um, the non-football side of it. Were you out in the center of Amsterdam, and did it look as bad as um, as, as we saw on social media? I think they said, "Is it ninety England fans who've been uh, who, who who were arrested for some of the incidents there?" One hundred and fifteen. I mean, sadly, I've seen far worse with England abroad. The, the, the surprise 
was well, it's no surprise. I mean, Italy, the Turin game, the, uh, the friendly a couple of years ago, you saw a, a different type of fan coming along. It was the, the, the day trip who weren't necessarily going for the uh, uh, for the match itself, but they were actually going for the uh, you know the jolly up as they would call it for you know easy cheap flights. Turin less so, but certainly Amsterdam, bit of a party town, and there are probably about ten thousand. Uh, young English there, of whom 5,000 went to the the game. So, look, I saw England fans singing and being objectionable. I also saw them going into the Anne Frank Museum. So it's a slightly more nuanced um, scenario than everyone's painting it. But quite interestingly, when the, the FA put their statement out, it was very <laughs> condemning all fans, which I know annoyed, you know, the... <laughs> probably about half the fans who went there who just wanted to support the team and have can, a quiet can drink. Just, can, can you just explain this for, for people who don't know? Now, you said there was about 10,000 Englishmen there. To get a ticket to an England game, the most straightforward way is you get it through the FA. It's often more difficult to buy it locally. We talk about England fans. Those people who were arrested, the FA presumably can know whether they've been to England games before. They've got records yeah. of these people. They know their identity. Um, it shouldn't be hard to figure out whether those 115 guys, whether it's true that the vast majority of them are actually England fans who travel with some regularity, or whether they're just jobs who said, oh, look, let's go to Amsterdam, and, you know, the, the, the football lads will be there, but it doesn't matter because, you know, I'll be, I'll be high as a kite and hanging out in the red light district anyway during the game because I don't care because it's a stupid friendly. If they are members of the England Sports Travel Club who have been arrested then as the FA pointed out um, in their statement, that you know, they'll be sanctioned and they'll be banned. So I mean, that's, that's fairly straightforward. The, I mean, it's interesting what the splits will be. I would imagine it will be, I'm guessing, but it'll probably be 90% non-travel club members. So I, I have some sympathy for the travel club members because they're the ones who go and support and actually the ones who are not doing in the national anthem. And actually, if you look at what was going on there, anyone was in the stadium, could see that there were a few of the fans who were saying, listen, this is just out of order, don't boo. But then, you know, there are some members of the uh, of, of the travel club who are the ones who are singing 10 German bombers and, and they need flushing out as well. So, uh, but it's, I mean, I, I read a lot of columns on these things from people who aren't there and a lot of it just completely misses the fact that it's not completely black and white. It is far more nuanced. You know, there are some innocent fans in there. But unfortunately, they're, enjoyment and their support is being tarnished by um, by these jobs who come along. Now, for people who are concerned, and just to, to wrap this up before we go to the football, that this is going to be an issue at the World Cup in Russia, people who might be scared to go there because there's shaven-headed Englishmen, like the one sitting across this table from me, given how difficult it is to to get a visa to Russia, given the amount of details, given the expense, given the fact that, let's face it, the Russian police are slightly scarier than the Dutch police, and then before we even get into the the Russian hooligans with their GoPros and stuff like that, can we safely assume that, I mean, knock on wood, that we're not going to see any of this at the World Cup, and it was kind of like, oh, look, this is the last time we can really go and have a jolly in a ruck Right, with England things, for a long yeah, time. Three, three things, just cutting in. Okay, the, the, the first thing is Putin will call off the dogs. So I'll be surprised if we see the organised trouble that was inflicted on England fans 
in Marseille at the, at the Euros. Obviously, you know, a few England fans absolutely disgraced themselves there. Uh, the second point is you've only got to look at the, the ticketing information from FIFA and anecdotal evidence talking to England fans. And one of the reasons why so many fans, whether they are England fans or whether they are just going along for the jolly up, are going to Amsterdam and Turin now is because they're not going to go to the World Cup. So they're actually spending their money, which they've saved up for going for tournaments, uh, actually going now. So, you know, that's, that's one of the, uh, those are the sort of the main issues of why they won't go. And oh, the third point is, is that since 2002, there was a sea change. 2000 was a bad tournament. Shawa, we all remember that. Um, I always worry when England go to a place where, the, where there's a cobbled city centre. Um, but from t- 2002 onwards, there hasn't actually been too much trouble with England fans. I mean, there were sort of 100-odd thousand in Germany. And OK, there was some, you know, a lot of inflatable Spitfires and 10 German bombers and air raid sirens and don't, don't give them your name, Pike, and that sort of rather puerile banter. But um, on the whole, England fans and since 2000 have been, have been fairly well behaved at tournaments. I think that's partly CCTV, partly banning orders. Whoever invented banning orders should be knighted. I think they're about, obviously, it's club as well as country, but there are 5,000 in, in place at one point. They're absolutely key. And I think fair play to people like the Football Sporters Federation and the more sensible fans who've done a little bit of self-policing and say, listen, don't spoil the party for, for, for the rest of us. On to the football. We saw a back three. Uh, again, We some of us were... A bit surprised to see Kyle Walker in there. He's really committed to this, Henry, isn't he? Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, it, it slightly reflects how he uh, he sort of particularly enjoyed the tournament at uh, uh, France '98. His admiration for uh, for Hoddle um, and his use of a, uh, a back three. I think he wanted to get an extra uh, body in midfield because England haven't really got anyone with Jack Wilshere who can who can sort of hold on to the ball and pass it properly. So I think there was a there was an element of that. I think he quite likes the idea of when he looks at the defenders and he, he wants to build out from the back. He's got a goalkeeper now who looks fairly embedded. I think one of the things that Southgate wanted to do in Amsterdam would just see if he could play as the right side of the three centre-halves because he know he can play at wing-back, which allows him to uh, drop a centre-half as cover, which allows him to, to pick a more attacking player uh, when he comes to sort of deciding his 20-man outfield squad. I think it's absolutely logical that you play players that are comfortable in fullback positions in those wide centre half positions, and in international even football, even though they never do it at club level. Yeah, even though they don't do it at club level. It's the, um, and you've got enough time to coach them and teach got, them how to do to, this. Yeah, These are English players. I, I, yeah. I, I think that. Yeah, I think they've got enough time to do it. I think they're intelligent enough. Maguire, I think, is the best passer out from the back with the ball. I think he's far better than John Stones at doing so. John Stones played well against the Dutch, but the whole reason you play out from the back, and this is my my question. Every time to Gareth Southgate, I hear, hear him waffle on about playing out from the back. Does he know why he's trying to play out from the back? The reason you play out from the back is so that you get better quality into the front areas as quickly as possible. Often, England go from one side of the field to the other side of the field and talking about composure. That's not playing out from the back very well, where you end up going back to your fullback and who goes back to the goalkeeper. That's just playing for the sake of playing. England have got to make sure that they create avenues so the ball can go into the front two, if it's a front two, or into the front three. And 
that's where Gareth Southgate has got to make sure that he's got those back players understand and the midfield players understanding why they are playing out from the back. And the best player is still Harry Maguire. He's the one that comes out with the ball. He's the one that makes that yardage. He's the one that's playing the ball into the front players. John Stones often, he did it better against the Dutch. Quite often, he's playing square, uh, uh, playing to the other centre half. He's playing into midfield, gets the ball back. He's going nowhere with it. He doesn't well, understand why he's trying to play forward. Well, he- in Henry, your response to that, I mean, I'm assuming that if, I mean, based on what Robbo's saying, um, it's not just down to the guys at the back understanding when they want to get the, bu- get the ball forward quickly and intelligently. It's also down to the front three making the right runs and, and the right kind of movements, right? Definitely. I mean, two things there. First, it's nice to see a little bit of intelligence in England's back line because <laughs> too often they've looked a little bit sort of pedestrian and laboured and it's just too easy for the opposition. So actually to have a little bit of creativity and a little bit of intelligence in, in the back line is to encourage. Where, where I do have a concern, and, I, and I've marked Stewart's support for Harry Maguire, and I'm, I'm a big Maguire fan, but he has got a mistake in him. He's not the most mobile. And I think against the sort of the more fleet-footed attackers, certainly in the, uh, in the third game against Belgium, they'll be at him. You know, he won't be allowed that time on the ball that he got. Would Harry Maguire um, be better suited as the middle centre-half? Possibly. That's, what, that's yeah. what I feel. You know, when I yeah. watch Harry, well, why, why do they play him on the left-hand side? He's he would be the ideal middle centre back because then you're because Stones on the left-hand Stones side. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, but the, but would you always play Stones? Is Stones? You know, I'm not a great Stones fan. I think he's got. When you talk about Harry Maguire having a mistake, then Stones has more mistakes well, than Harry. The thing though, if you play a back, back three, if you don't like Stones and Maguire's got to do mistakes, so we got to put him in the middle. You're going to start running out of defenders, or you're going to start turning to. Phil Jones and Chris Smalling and and Michael Keane and you see where I'm going with yeah, this. Yeah. yeah, I understand that. I um, mean, which is maybe I mean Henry, is that why he's 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 trying out? He wants to get a good hard look at at, at uh, Alfie Mawson and and uh, James Tarkowski. Yeah, I imagine both of them will uh, will feature if not start tomorrow night against Italy. Um, I just think it's good, and and obviously this is in Southgate's own sort of personal psyche that. You know, as a midfielder and as a defender, that we do have players who can step into midfield because we are pretty barren in midfield. You know, we wasted Rio Ferdinand. The sirens almost went off in the dugout when Sven Euron Eriksson there, when Rio Ferdinand stepped into the opposition half. I, I think it's I'm I'm pleased that Southgate's doing it because uh, um, Rio was effectively wasted. You know, players spend most of their time in club football and they're very drilled and very comfortable in, in, in club football. It strikes me that. On this England team, in, in midfield and attack, you're going to have a ton of Tottenham players. Obviously, Trippier and, and Rose, possibly. Um, Eric Dyer, definitely. Dele Alli, definitely. And Harry Kane, definitely. I'm wondering, if you can get Raheem Sterling to impersonate Hongmin Son, why not just copy the way Pochettino plays? Yeah, I mean, years ago, there was a. Everybody was talking, or not everybody was talking, they should have been talking about what's the best club side in world football. It was Liverpool. They were winning the European Cup, they were the dominant force. And England should have played exactly the same way as Liverpool played at that. Yeah, the problem is Liverpool had a bunch of Scottish of players, they and did. Yeah. but there was but there was still there was still. Uh, but Spurs have a ton of English yeah. players, and that's you, a difference. Who can play but for England? There's two players that I think are vital for Spurs that England haven't got. One is Eriksson with his passing, and the other is Dembele, who can receive the ball in midfield tight areas and and make things happen. A Jack Wilshere, maybe of four or five years ago, was the Dembele. He was the one that could receive the ball, could manipulate it, could get away from people. But I think Jack Wilshere... Sterling, who can do... who can. I mean, he brings other... Maybe he's 
he's closer to Son in some ways. Sterling's not a passable. You wouldn't say Sterling's going to pick out. No, no, but like neither Ericsson. is Son. He can do the Son job, okay. and then you just have. So you have then, two players that you, the Ericsson, who 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 does that role? Jack Wilshire. Since I think Jack Wilshire is, is, is a Jack Wilshire can't be a bad Ericsson. He can manipulate the ball. I don't think he's going to see those forward passes that Ericsson does. He's he's a, he's a different sort of player. It means you can play with a midfield three. But the the two of them would have to be. But you can't unless one of them is Deli Ali, or unless you drop Ali entirely. Well, that's that's the the big, the big question. Deli Ali, from what I've seen this season, isn't you said he's a must for the team. Certainly not a must for the team. I but don't think Deli Ali's been good enough this it, year. He hasn't been good, but he's more talented than. What are you going to do? Like, I so, mean, so, but you're talking about Sterling. So you could play Sterling up front with Harry Kane. Then you play three midfield players. And you, what you could do is play but Deli Alli. But then that's the other problem is you're weak in central midfield. So then you've got another stiff in the team. Well, you could play Deli Alli as a midfield. I think he's a better midfield player than he is a second centre forward. That's what he should be. That's what he started out as. That's when he makes all his best runs, when he's playing in midfield. Not when he's, when he's played as a second centre forward and he's got to receive the ball with his back to go in tight areas. He's not a good player. Who are the three players that... England can least afford to lose. In other words, for whom there is no obvious replacement or the replacement, there's such a massive gap in quality. Uh, I would say... Um, well, I'll throw out the one I think is obvious, which we can agree on, is Harry Kane. Harry yeah? Kane, yeah. Harry Kane, when you've watched him over the last two or three years, scores goals out of nothing. Not four only, years. He's a four-season four, wonder. Yeah. So you, you see him with his yeah. uh, back to go. He can link up the play. But he scores goals out of nothing. You know, other players wouldn't score those goals. Okay. We know that Vardy, we know what his quality are. He's running in behind, but it has to be an inch-perfect ball. He won't create goals for himself, Vardy. Right. Harry Kane creates goals for himself. Okay, so Kane is one, and then? Uh, I would go, personally, with Maguire would have to be a must if, if Southgate wants to play the way he's playing because he's the best player, best passer of the ball out from the back. He's the best understander of what any, he's trying to do. Can any of the other centre, other than Stones, can, can any of the other centre-backs pass the ball? I mean, how would you assess them? No, there's no. a difference between passing the ball and coming out with the no, ball. No, coming out with the ball, passing the ball intelligently. Ma- no, Maguire's the best. KL, Jones, Smalling, no, those Not guys can do that. Okay. Do that. And who's your third? Maguire. And the third, now, I would, I would go with Eric Dyer as the holding midfield player. Or one of the holding midfield players. I think he's Henderson a... can't impersonate Dyer. No, I would play Dyer over Henderson because Dyer, when he sees danger in wide areas, he can drop back in between his centre halves if there's a threat and head the ball out. He's better uh, in the opposition's box at set plays. He's got a better range of passing than uh, than Henderson. He's not as dynamic, I don't think, as Henderson, but I think his all-round game is better than Henderson. <laughs> I'm delighted now uh, to be joined by my old friend and somebody who uh, I've known for, God, I'm going to age myself here, uh, something like uh, uh, 20 years. It's Grant Wall from uh, uh, from Sports Illustrated. Grant, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me, Gab. Great to talk to you. You have a book coming out, um, and I think it's uh, it's a bit different from a lot of books that, that normally get published. The title in the UK is... Uh, uh, football 2.0, how the world's best play the, the modern game. In the U.S., it's uh, masters of uh, modern soccer. I think what sets it apart is what you set out to do and sort of what the inspiration for this was. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, there's a classic baseball book in the United States that came out in 1990 called Men at Work, and it's written by a guy named George Will, who's a, a famous political columnist who also happens to love the sport of baseball. And what he did is something that you could do with any sport. Uh, he 
broke the sport of baseball down into four component parts, uh, a batter, a pitcher, a fielder, and a manager, picked one person to represent each. And that person was not only really accomplished, but really intelligent at explaining the craft of their sport, how they do what they do. And uh, this became a very successful book uh, that, uh, interestingly, nobody really applied to a different sport and you could do it with any sport. So I decided to do this in homage to, to George Will with soccer, football. And instead of having four figures, I have seven figures in my book. Five of them are players. There's a manager, there's a director of football. And the whole idea was to look at the craft of soccer position by position, uh, working with uh, spending time with interviewing people who are not just world-class at their sport or very close to it, but also really intelligent at explaining how they do what they do. Well, let's just talk a little bit about the way you broke it down. Let's start with the, uh, with, with the players. I'm just going to, going to run through them. Um, your, your goalkeeper is, uh, is Manuel Neuer, which I thought was, was sort of an interesting choice, not because, it, you know, he isn't an outstanding goalkeeper, but because, he has certain physical gifts in the way his team play with, with Bayern, for example, playing such a, such a high line um, and the ball being at the other end of the pitch for most of the game that in some ways he's, he's, he's called to do things that, that other keepers habitually don't do. No, that's true. As I went along in this book process, the idea of modern football is a, a running theme that became even more and more prominent as I was doing these interviews over a two-year period. And Neuer has innovated the goalkeeper position with his sweeper-keeper role as much as any goalkeeper of the last several decades, uh, I would argue. And, uh, and we talked about that and, and the conditions in his career that led to that. We also talked, it was interesting, because part of the time over this two-year period, he was playing for Carlo Ancelotti as well. And he had a sense, Neuer, that his sweeper-keeper position had changed under Ancelotti, that his team wasn't playing as high a line at Bayern, and that he was actually doing more traditional goalkeeper things. And there's some analytics uh, study in each of these chapters as well, and the numbers bore that out. You know this, as I was talking to you uh, and a few other journalists in Europe, as I started looking into this book a couple years ago, uh, I asked you guys, like, you know, who are some really good interviews from your experience among players? I was trying to find a good, good cross-section of players for this book. And, uh, and Neuer came up from a couple people, and uh, I, I really enjoyed speaking to him. Your defender is, I mean, I think is a slam dunk in terms of intelligent interviews, is, is Vincent Company. Uh, and what I find really interesting here is you have a guy who, you know, at 17 was starting um, in, in, in top flight football. And I don't know if you'd agree with this, but partly because he, he was a freakish athlete. Now, years later, obviously injuries have taken their toll. He's obviously a very, very bright guy. Um, but he has matured tremendously on the mental side of the game. I mean, not now, but probably five or six years ago. Talk a bit about him because I think as center backs go, his journey is again, maybe a bit unusual. Yeah, it, it is in the sense of Vincent Company is a guy who, yes, the injuries have been very difficult 
in recent years, but he is a guy who wants to continue learning new things uh, as long as he's around. So here's a guy who's in his 30s and really thinks the game in a very deep way. Of all the guys I interviewed, he probably had more tricks of the trade of a center back that he shared about his position. They all share them to some extent, but things that you've learned over time in your career. You know, one of the things that always stood out to me was a company talking about going up for a header uh, against an opponent. And what he's learned is that you actually don't need to jump as long as you have, as you own the space where that ball is supposed is going to land. Your midfielder is, is a guy who maybe as much as company or even more is a guy who's just universally adored and admired and everybody seems to agree he can go and do whatever he wants in football once he leaves. That's that's Xabi Alonso, um, Liverpool, Real Madrid, Bayern. He's done it all. Unlike the other guys, when you were speaking to him, you know his career. he knew his career was ending. Um, did that, did, did, did that impact things a little bit? What, what was your big takeaway from, from, from him? One of the things that was fascinating to me, the three guys we've talked about so far, Neuer, Company, and Xabi Alonso, all played for Pep Guardiola in their 30s. And you would think that these guys would think, I know just about everything I'm ever going to know about this sport, having played it so long, having played at the highest levels and won things. And all three of these guys, including Alonzo, uh, go into great detail about the things they have learned under Guardiola. The reverence these guys have for Guardiola is pretty incredible. Uh, and so even though Guardiola is not a figure in the book, it's almost like he is a figure in the book sort of hanging over it. And Alonzo was a guy who, after playing for so many great managers in his career, engineered a move to Bayern to play for Guardiola knowing that Alonzo wanted to be a coach himself someday. And so Alonzo talks with me about this notebook that he keeps kept the last couple years of his career, his playing career, uh, in which he would jot all these different ideas that would come into his mind playing under Guardiola. One thing I found fascinating about Alonzo is that he said that he was basically a finished passer at the age of 18 or 19, he feels like the skills of passing the ball he had acquired by that age, but that he was still learning things about positional sense into his 30s playing for Guardiola, that that was the area where he was still growing as a player. Your striker in this in, in this group is somebody who Euro snobs might look down on a little bit in the sense that maybe he's not on a par with the other three. It's a guy who I, who I think many people would look at and say, well, you know, he didn't pan out to be what people thought he might be. Um, but I think in some ways, maybe that makes him more more interesting. It's Chicharito Hernandez. Yeah, I enjoyed spending time with him over the last couple of years. Uh, first, when he was at Leverkusen in Germany, uh, then when he was with the Mexican national team, actually last year here. What I would say about Hernandez is. He has this reputation as a poacher, um, as a guy who isn't necessarily the most technically gifted 
center forward in the world, and yet he finds a way to score ugly goals. And uh, so we got into that, and what it is that he does on the field, you learn that there's it's not a coincidence that he scores a lot of ugly goals, that he anticipates runs in the box and things that will happen ahead of time. Now, maybe he hasn't done that as much this season at West Ham United, but uh, he's a guy whose history as a center forward actually fits this book pretty well, I think. This book isn't about genius. I didn't want to have Lionel Messi for this book. And here's why. And I've interviewed Lionel Messi for Sports Illustrated. I don't think, one, Lionel Messi, who's wonderful and actually a, a more intelligent guy at explaining what he does than he gets credit for sometimes. But I, he's not as introspective about his gift as the players in this book are. And I also think what he does is so often genius, which is a word that I don't use lightly, that it's not really a craft. A craft is something that's repeatable. And the guys in this book are more about craft than they are about genius necessarily. They've worked at it, both to, to learn the game, to perfect playing the game. Um, and so I think in many ways, Hernandez was uh, a, a good choice in the end. Yes, also from a commercial purpose, this book's coming out in North America, and he's probably the most high-profile player in North America. I get it. But, uh, but I, I really did learn from, from Hernandez and, uh, and how he approaches playing the forward position. It was fun for me to talk to guys like Vincent Company about defending Hernandez. Christian Pulisic is in this as well. Now, obviously, he's a whole other category, but, and I think in some ways that makes him interesting because he's he's much younger than everybody else and he's obviously somebody who's on the who's at the beginning of hopefully uh, a long and successful career yeah i mean like on the one hand I'll, I'll come right out and say it here my publisher wanted to have an american in this and christian pulisic even though he's still just a teenager is the closest thing to world class in american men's soccer and so i had gotten to know him uh, a little bit as his rise was taking place uh, from the youth ranks to the first team at Dortmund. And what I had noticed was he, he really does think the game, you know, the concern that I had was, is, is Christian Pulisic going to hold his own with Xavi Alonso when it comes to talking about playing the attacking midfielder position with Alonso talking about playing the defensive midfield position and Pulisic, held his own, you know, just as, as Alonzo talked about being essentially a finished passer by the age of 18 or 19, Pulisic feels like his one-on-one -on -one ability to break a guy down is, is nearly finished, but there's so many other things that he ha he has to get better at. And he realizes this, we have this tendency in the U S for young, talented players to feel like they've made it, they've arrived, they're a finished player and they're still a teenager, whereas Pulisic's like, look, I've got to get better in a lot of areas, including what to do after I beat a guy one-on-one. -on -one. Now, your two, I guess, let's call them non-playing positions, um, I, I, I think are quite interesting. And I think to some degree, um, this was inevitable because with, with a footballer, we can appreciate what the footballer is. With managers, it's so much more removed. Your choice of manager was my old ESPN colleague, former uh, Everton 
manager, uh, Roberto Martinez, who's now in charge of Belgium. This is somebody who, as managers go, certainly started low down the food chain and and has perhaps experienced disappointment along the way and, and bounced back. Yeah. Part of this process of the interviews for this book, and it ended up providing, I think, more insight than originally planned was when we first started doing our interviews, Roberta was the manager at Everton. Um, you know, this was early 2016. So we went into depth about being a club manager and how he uses his time, how he prepares his team, how he handles all the things he was doing as the Everton manager. And then he gets fired pretty soon thereafter, after our first set of interviews, and ends up taking the Belgium job. About half the chapter is about what he was doing as a club manager, and then the other half of the chapter is about what he's doing as a national team manager, a guy who could win the World Cup this summer with Belgium, and how he's adjusting to the change from being a Premier League manager to a national team coach who only gets his players every so often. And to sort of experience that with Martinez, um, I really appreciate the window he gave me into that because it's a pretty big adjustment for him. And I still, I think even now, and you know from having worked with Roberto how how much he thinks of the game, you know, he's well known here in the US having uh, been part of their World Cup broadcast, Euro broadcasts uh, for years now. But it was really enjoyable for me to sort of hear what he was saying as he was experiencing all of this stuff. And I'm curious to see what he ends up doing next, if that's another national team job or getting back into the club game. I think he's young enough that I think he wants to get back in the club game. And finally, um, Michael Zoic is your choice as sort of director of football, sporting director, whatever you want to call it. Michael Zoic, for those who don't know, he's the director of football at Borussia Dortmund. Um, had a huge hand in assembling Jurgen Klopp's team that um, you know won the Bundesliga and um, and and reached the Champions League final. Klopp moved on. Zork stayed. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned from there? And in particular, one thing I'm often interested in, and and Arsenal fans may be interested to hear this is, you know, director of football. You, you're sort of the buffer or, I mean, it can mean different things in different clubs, but part of your job is kind of being the buffer between the club and the manager. Part of your job is obviously identifying talent, managing the talent that you have in terms of contracts. And part of it is acquiring talent. You can't kind of do everything on your own. So in his case, he worked with a guy named Sven Mislinstadt, who Arsenal fans are coming to know because he was the, the top scout there and uh, who, who is now working, uh, working for Arsenal. Can, can you talk a little bit about how he defined his job and, and as an ex-player, how his playing experience came into it? Well, just to start that chapter was to try and get Zork to explain, what do you do? Because I think the director of football, sporting director position... You mentioned a lot of the things that he does, but it, it depends on on the situation. It uh, depends on the amount of power that that person has at a club. And Zork has a lot of power at Borussia Dortmund. He, that's the only club he ever played at in his cr- playing career. He won a Champions League title there. 
He's from that part of Germany. He has a deep association, a lifelong association with the club. And he's more powerful at that club than any manager or coach because they, they actually make a very big distinction there between manager and coach. It's a head coach who's in charge of the first team and not overall strategy there. And to hear Zork tell his story about how once he was done playing and being the captain of Dortmund and then moving into this sporting director role, there was a lot of pressure because this is a club that nearly went under financially in the early 2000s that needed to get a loan from Bayern Munich of all places to help stay afloat. And Zork helped develop a strategy that has sustained this club and allowed it to compete uh, to win trophies. Um, you know, Dortmund's a fascinating club because you've got, it's the world's largest attendance of any club in the world. They do have a lot of revenue coming from that, but they're aspiring to be in the last eight of Champions League every year. Now, they were last season. They aren't this season. But if you're making less, you know, 200 million euros less in revenues than the teams you're com you see yourself competing against, how are you going to make up that gap? And part of that he has done by just being really good with his scouting team that was led by Sven Mislintat for so long of buying low and selling high. We're going to give opportunities to young players and young players are going to want to come to Dortmund even if they have an opportunity to play at a Real Madrid, but they're going to play, actually play more at Dortmund. We're going to give them opportunities like a Dembele. As long as Dortmund gets to Champions League every year, they can offer that. And they have a track record now of making young players better to be like the ideal stepping stone in European soccer. And yet you still have to make Champions League every year. So that's the challenge right now. If you don't make Champions League, then your, your strategy, your model sort of breaks down. Uh, the book is out here in the United Kingdom on May 1st. Is that right? On May 1st, yes. May Day, there you go. What a way to celebrate. And it's coming out at the same time in the United States. If you're in another part of the world, I'm sure through this magical thing we call the internet, I'm sure you can uh, you can find it. It's called Masters of Modern Soccer in North America, and it's called uh, Football 2.0 here in, uh, uh, in Europe, but far easier than that. Just Google the guy's last name, Wall, W-A-H-L. It means vote in German. And uh, you'll have no trouble. Uh, you'll see several books there. It's not the Beckham book. It's the other one. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Love the game? Then don't miss The Game Daily. It's your lunchtime update from football's finest writers, and it's only at thetimes.co.uk. It's a real treat now to talk about a footballer, um, a late footballer from uh, from a previous time who we throw the word icon around so much, but I think this guy fit it, certainly fit it for for what he achieved on the pitch and, and off the pitch. Uh, that man is Socrates and Andrew Downey, who joins us on the line, has written a book about it. Andrew, let's get the specifics out of the out of the way. Tell us what the title of your book is and when it's out. The title is Dr. Socrates, Footballer, Philosopher, Legend. And it came out last week in paperback, so it's available now. My first sort of memory of a major tournament, and until I saw Spain recently, was still the 1982 Brazil team, which I, I still think is maybe possibly the best national side I've ever seen. It was certainly the the last side of sort of the the, the romantic Brazil um, with with Falcao and, and and Zico and but Socrates was really in some ways he was kind of the coolest figure of the bunch. Can you talk a little bit about his role in in that team and and how that 82 side is is, is remembered? Definitely one of the greatest teams never to have won the World Cup, probably along with Hungary in 54 and Holland in 1974. The great thing about that Brazil team is, first of all, you know, the World Cup back then, we never really knew who the other teams were. So just going to, 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 to Spain, I, I remember the World Cup. I was just a young boy, but I remember it, it was the summer. It seemed to be insanely sunny, and the whole Brazil team seemed to be bathed in the golden sheen and that gave it a, a real extra kind of romance and gave it an extra kind of technicolor glamour. They arrived there with a, led by Socrates who you know, was famous as a drinker, famous as a smoker, but for the one time in his career he, he knew that this was his chance. He knew the team that he had under his stewardship was one that really could win the World Cup. So he decided a few months before the World Cup he was going to stop drinking, stop smoking and really for the only time in his career get himself into shape. And he, and he did that, you know, he, he he spent the months beforehand, you know, at the side of the football pitch, the training pitch, throwing up. It was just, it was so difficult for him to 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 make these sacrifices. And it, and it really worked because they were really in great form going there. You know, I'll let you get into the details if you want about what actually happened. I mean, we all know the famous game against Italy where Brazil only, only needed to draw to qualify for the semifinals and, and, and and lost the two, and what everyone remembers is one of the greatest games of all time. But that was really the background to it. Is with Socrates was was ready. He was not for the first time in his career. He really focused on football like like never ever before. If he didn't focus on football until that point, what made him such a, a great player? How did he get into the Brazil national side if he hadn't if he hadn't really prioritised that in his previous life? 
mainly it was just talent. You know, he knew exactly what he was doing. He grew up with this innate talent. He had a, a, an amazing vision. You know, he could score goals. He could put the ball wherever he wanted. He did a, a fantastic pass. And he had a great, this really, you know, this really quiet leadership. Uh, you know, he was a doctor. You know, he, the reason he never focused on football as much as, as all his teammates was he was studying all through his early career. He was studying medicine at the same time as he was playing football. So he would study at university all day and he'd play matches at the weekend and he'd occasionally run over to the training pitch at night and he'd do a half a lap or he'd, he, you know, he'd do star jumps and pretend that that was training. And really, all he was interested in was actually playing football, playing games. And all his teammates put up with it because they knew that, that they would get their win bonus if he turned up. The fact that he was an educated man, the fact that he had a political dimension um, as well and, and that he spoke about it, that's something that I, I tend to associate far more with with South American football than European football in general. Is that accurate? I mean, is, is, is Socrates kind of almost like a like like a South American archetype in that way? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, you, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, you, you do have two or three Brazilians who stood out for taking a stance. It's important to remember that these players, one would be Afonso, who was uh, who fought against. Uh, he, he was he was politically active in the early 1970s, and he fought against uh, Mario Zagallo, principally, who was the Brazil coach in 1970, who told him to go and cut his hair because he looked like a hippie and a communist. And he said, "I refuse to do that. I'm, it's my hair. I'm leaving it the length I want." So he was one guy. You also had Tostão, who became a doctor, who was also a very intelligent guy and remains a very intelligent. Commentator today, one of the most lucid and, and, and best commentators that exists in Brazil. But I think you have to say that there's that, that's only three people we're talking about here, and, and we're talking about. Sorry, if know, I jump in there, I'm also the thinking of of Romario, who's obviously gone into politics since then, although he wasn't necessarily like that as a player. Uh, of of Rai, of 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 Leonardo, who's certainly more educated and more intelligent than the most average footballers you, you find in Europe. Yeah, I think there's a big difference though between people like Rai and Leonardo who are doing who are doing fantastic stuff off the field with a Goldie Letra, which is a you know a charity that looks after kids. The big big difference between that because I think a lot of football players do get involved in doing charity work. That's one thing. It's a whole different thing to actually stand up to you know the powers that be in football, uh, or just to to talk knowledgeably and politically about what's going on. Romario is a, is a kind of different case. You know, Romario. You know, throughout his career, he was, you know, Romario was, uh, you know, an individual. He was, you know, he was an incredible player and an incredible guy because he did what he wanted when he wanted. He was never that different as, as a player in the sense that he never took very many positions or any positions politically or socially. It's only afterwards that he, he got involved in politics and, and, you know, his political record is patchy. So I think, again, that's a, a different, you know, a different uh, situation. So Socrates, Afonso, Postal, I mean, they're all, you know, they're all, they're all unique in what they did, and I think there's very, very few players around the world who, who can compare to, 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 their, to their actions. How did he cope with his year in Fiorentina? Did that go well for him? <laughs> no, it was a disaster. Um, it was a disaster for many reasons. You know, there's a lot of personal things that were going on in his life. His marriage was kind of coming to an end. Socrates was the main man in Brazil. He was not only the Brazil captain... He was the leader at Corinthians, and he had led this 
movement called Corinthians Democracy, where in 1982 and 1983, starting in 1984, the players would vote on almost everything that happened at the club. They would decide you know, which players to buy. They would decide you know, what day to leave for the the league match you know in in the northeast of Brazil they would decide whether or not to stop the court coming back from a game to have a you know a pee break so they would vote on all this stuff which was revolutionary which would be revolutionary at any time it was particularly revolutionary in Brazil at the time because Brazil was living under a dictatorship and a couple of generations of Brazilians hadn't been able to vote on anything for you know, more than 20 years so that was this huge thing he led this organization and you know his, the other players looked up to him because of because of the position he had in this. And so when he went to to Fiorentina, he he encountered a whole bunch of players who were a lot more strong-willed. You know, he was playing alongside guys like Passarella, uh, Giovanni Galli, Galli, who was the you know Gabe knows this better than I do, as the as the you know the Italian keeper. A whole bunch of you know Antonioni was there, but never played. A whole bunch of Italian guys who were highly, highly professional, and they were not used to having a player like Socrates. Socrates thought he was the guy who had the skill, he was the guy who had the flair, and the other players would kind of do the running, and he would turn on the magic. And when he got there, the Italians were like, no, mate, you know, you're going to run every bit as much as what we are. And there was a whole bunch of issues. There was a split at the club. There was one group was against another group, and this really caused a huge rift. Socrates claimed some players weren't passing the ball to others. You know, it was the coldest winter in almost 100 years, and it was just a miserable, miserable time for him, and he really wanted to come home. And so after a year, he cut his losses, and, and that was it. He was back to Brazil. You think you photographed the situation perfectly. Uh, Italian football was, you know, you talk about military regimes. It was uber-regimented back then even more uh, than it is now. Part of his failure at Fiorentina was, he did not want to compromise. He had he had spent his whole life never compromising. And that was one of the things that made him such a fascinating character and one of the things that brought him so many problems. But I think he went to Fiorentina and thought, I'm going to change the culture here or I'm going to change this team. And he underestimated just how ingrained the culture of Italian football was and how difficult it would be to change things. The book is uh, is out there. Um, read about Socrates. Uh, it's Andrew Downey, not like Morton Downey or Robert Downey Jr., but rather D-O-W-N-I-E. You ought to be able to remember that and Google it. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the invite. Okay, don't know about you, Stuart, but I'm all booked out, so why don't we do some quick hits? Uh, it's only friendlies, but South American sides won six of six games against European opposition. Stuart, anything to be read into that? Well, we already know that the South Americans are good, but they didn't play, apart from the French, they didn't play against any of the top European sides. Germany and Spain played uh, against each other. Belgium, they didn't play against the Belgium side. I think they're three of the four uh, European sides that can challenge for the World Cup. Uh, the other one being France, they lost to Colombia. So that's a big result. And I think that tells you more about the state France are in at the moment than it does about Colombia. Now, we've had reports that Jose Mourinho has fallen out with Paul Pogba and reports via one DDA Drogba, no less, that the relationship is still strong. Who do you tend to believe? The fact that Mourinho has left out Pogba on two or three occasions when he was He's playing... Been injured. He, yes, some would say that, but he was he was a regular fit. Even when he was half fit, 
Marino still played and backed him to the hill, said how great he was. Now he's starting to question him. I don't think he feels as though he can get the best out of Paul Polpa. So in my view, the relationship looks as though it has broken down, which is a major problem for Manchester United because Pogba should be one of the best midfield players in the world. And I think still is one of the best midfield players. I'll tell you my problem with this story Mm. is I forget. I think it was the last United game or the one before. Mourinho's giving a post-match interview and then all of a sudden he interrupts it because Pogba goes by and high-fives him and Mourinho's all laughing and stuff. Since then, because of the international break, Mourinho hasn't seen much of Pogba. I can't imagine Pogba going out of his way to high five the manager on television no. if if he's got some kind of major issue with him. So so no, I, I tend to agree with uh with Didier Drogba here. Which doesn't mean that, you know, United don't have an issue right now in getting the best out of Pogba. Now it seems that sitting out only makes your stock grow. Thomas Tuchel was apparently wanted by Bayern, whom he turned down, Arsenal, and Paris Saint Germain reports in Germany that Tuchel gave a two-hour interview with Paris Saint-Germain speaking in fluent, albeit German-accented French. And, and Arsenal were going to get him. Or were they? Where's the best fit for this guy? Uh, well, he didn't have a great time at Borussia Dortmund. He upset... First, uh, second, and third. Yeah, he upset the, the ball, didn't he? He upset uh, his employers. Michael Zork and apparently, reportedly, Sven Mislinstadt as well. Mm. Your mate, who's now at Arsenal. Yeah, so he won't be going to Arsenal, you wouldn't you think. You think so? No. Uh... I think Thomas Tuchel uh, obviously is a very good coach in terms of the style of football he wants to play. He's very He was innovative, uh, like Klopp was when he first came into the Borussia Dortmund job. Would Arsenal be a good fit for him? You need a manager at Arsenal that's going to dictate to the players the style of football, the way he wants to play. And I think Thomas, Thomas Tuchel would do that. Uh, whether he gets on with the backroom staff, as you're talking about, that's another question. But in terms of transforming a side that hasn't been coached for several years now to get in a manager that would really dictate the style of football, how he wants each individual to play, to try and get the best out of that team. He'd probably upset one or two, which wouldn't be a bad thing. I think he'd be an ideal fit for Arsenal. Better fit there than Paris Saint-Germain? Yes. Where he'd have to manage Neymar? Yeah. Okay. And Bayern, where he'd have to manage Rummenigge and Hernes? Yes. All right. More good news for your old club, West Ham United. Of course, former World Cup winners. David Sullivan has been hit with a £700,000 tax bill. It's a story in uh, in the Times today for reportedly using West Ham's holding company to minimize his taxes. Uh, Now, this comes after it emerged that West Ham made a profit of more than £40 million last year. And, of course, we've had the pitch invasions and so on. None of this is going to endear him to West Ham supporters, is it? Absolutely not. And are we surprised that these these findings have taken place? He got in trouble, uh, allegedly, at Birmingham, didn't he? West Ham supporters are never going to like this trio that are at West Ham now. They've found out that the amount of money they've made out of the sale of the Upton Park Stadium, uh, the money hasn't been put back into players, they've made a profit on players. They promised that when they were going to the new stadium, as much as the fans didn't want it, that they were going to build a side that was going to then challenge for to get into Europe, to challenge some of the best teams in Europe. That's not taking place because they're, they're not spending any money on decent players. I mean, Patrice Evra uh, hadn't played for however many months after he's fallen out of Marseille, and they go and get him on a free transfer. And it's never going to work. Those are the sort of signings that the West Ham fans are just not happy with. Cristiano Ronaldo scored twice against Egypt, bringing his career total to 81 goals. I have to mention Mo Salah scored, uh, also scored in that match, otherwise Liverpool fans will be angry. But anyway, Cristiano has three goals less than the legendary Ferenc Puskas, uh, who has the second most in history. Stuart, what are the odds that he doesn't just pass Puskas, but decides he wants to hang around until he breaks the all-time record, which is Ali Dai's 
109 international goals. He needs 28 goals to get there. He will hang around. There's no question about it because <laughs> at the moment, uh, when he plays for Portugal, he doesn't do too much running. He doesn't go into wide areas. He doesn't dribble with the ball anymore. He literally is their, their target man when balls are played into the box. We saw that at the European Championship. And he does it very well. All the time, he can still jump and he's still got great spring in his legs. He will score goals because he's as good in the air as any... We talk about France playing Giroud because he's good in the air and when balls come... Ronaldo is the best header of the ball in European football at the moment I'm, when balls come into the box. I'm imagining him sort of, I think at some point he said he might retire at 41. I'm imagining him like sort of passing 40, needing a bunch of goals, and then Portugal just scheduling all these friendlies against Gibraltar or something to, to try to get there. I, I don't know. I, I just think 81 international goals <laughs> is just so out there. But then again, the game has changed a little bit. and. And he's changed I, with it. That's the, that's yeah. the great thing. When Ronaldo first came on the scene, he was lots of tricks, step-overs, he'd go past people, he'd, he'd go on dribbles. He doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't even try and take anybody on there. He just gets the ball wide, gets himself into a goal-scoring position, and he's very clever in the box. His movement is brilliant. He's got a great technique when he's finishing, and he's a brilliant header of the ball. I mean, it's just unbelievable, I think, as a professional, um, what he's achieved. Now, Germany and Spain drew 1-1 in, I guess, what you'd call the marquee game in this crop of friendlies. Did you learn anything other than the fact that Jonas Hector still gets a game for Germany? I've seen a bit of Spain uh, since uh, Lopetegui took over, uh, and I've seen Germany quite a lot recently. I think Spain are now a better team than Germany. I think Germany, uh, we've talked about it many times, lack a centre-forward. Um, although Muller comes in and scores goals, they still lack that out now. Not a team of Werner guy. Not really, no. Uh, when I've seen him play, I've been very disappointed. He wins penalties, though. Yeah, he's and, he's, and he takes them. I've heard all your comments recently about how he takes the penalties, and he could be a, a dark horse for one of the uh, uh, leading goal scorers at the tournament. But that, I think that's an area where Germany are struggling with. Spain had a real problem uh, at the European Championship and the previous World Cup because people had got used to their possession football without too much penetration. People sat deep. They knew how to, to win the ball back and counterattack them. Under Lopetegui, they look a much better side. They play the football forward that little bit quicker. They don't pass for the sake of passing. They pass to get uh, people in and they're defending much better all around the field. So I think Spain will be a real force at the World Cup and I think they are better than Germany at the moment. That Spanish back six, De Gea, Danny Carvajal, Gerard Pique, Sergio Ramos, Jordi Alba, who's playing at a really high level again after some difficult years, and Busquets when fit. Mm -hmm. That's the best back six it in is, world yeah. football. I think by, it is. By, by some margin. And they, I mean, and maybe Brazil second, but they're not on this line. And Lopetegui's yeah. got them well organised now. And here's one for you, Gab. Why is Gigi Buffon still on the Italian national team? Given the next tournament game Italy play won't be at the earliest until summer of 2020, what is the point of keeping him around? It's a really good question. Um, now, I'm not sure he's going to play against uh, against England on Tuesday, but he certainly played against uh, Argentina. I think what it is, is you have an interim national team manager who doesn't have the heart to say, no, look, you know, you may still be on merit good enough to be here, but um, you presumably won't be in 2020, so let's get uh, Donnarumma or, or Mattia Perin or, or whoever else, let's get them some games. Um, I think Buffon, like a lot of really high-level athletes, is uber competitive, and he just looks at it and he simply asks himself one question: Am I good enough right now? He's not going to go and step aside. Is he good enough right now? I mean, I don't know. He wouldn't be my number one. Who would be your number one? 
like I said, Donnarumma or or Perin, or I'd, I'd love to see I'd love to see Meret get a chance as well. But I mean, I view it with an eye towards twenty twenty because those are the next you know really meaningful games. I mean, I know they'll have to go through Euro qualification and whatever, but. Italy failed to qualify for Euro 2020, then they should just disband the national team and say, all right, we had a good run and, you know, just put it under sort of like, <laughs> you know, defunct at this stage. So I think for that reason, if you are building towards something, then you don't see how he's going to be, he's going to be a part of it. He's going to be 42 years old in, in, in 2020. On the other hand, I think, you know, he's, he's achieved so much. He's done so much for the national team. I hope that it's not, as you know, people say he wants the all-time Caps record. You think he's eight away from it? That would just be silly. I know this is a quick hit. Who's going to be the manager to say to him, enough's enough? Who's going to be the next Italian manager? That's a that's a great question. Um, the three names that people throw around the most are, are Conte, Ancelotti, and Mancini. Guarantee you that Conte and Mancini would have no trouble whatsoever telling him to go and hang up his gloves for good. Ancelotti, I'm not so sure, because deep down he's a, a, nice, he's guy. a nice guy. And he's a warrior of the light, and he's a big softy. Um, there's also the possibility that Di Biagio is going to stick around. Um, I don't think that would be such a bad thing, frankly. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, everything's up in the air right now. Um, but there's no rush. I mean, you know, I think that's the one thing. People are freaking out. But, hey, we have nothing to play for for a long time. Let's, let's take our time with this. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my excellent guests, Stuart Robson, Henry Winter, Grant Wall, and Andrew Downey. Remember, it's just eight pounds for an eight-week trial. Uh, Just search the Times online and you get access to all our content as well as highlights of every single game in the Premier League, the Champions League, the Europa League, and the FA Cup. And you get the Sunday Times as well. A bit of Johnny Northcroft for you. Uh, We're going to be back next Monday when the Premier League returns with a huge game in the top four chase. It's Chelsea, it's Tottenham at Stamford Bridge. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.